0: All right, Tyler, are you excited for the first episode of our special season for Bioethics for the People?
1: I'm excited for every season of Bioethics for the People, but this special season is particularly exciting because it's new and different, just like this conference that we attended.
0: That's right, they're doing something new and exciting, we're doing something new and exciting, and we did an exciting collaboration. Can I say exciting one more time?
1: I think you (laughs) probably could.
0: Well, so what's special about this conference?
1: So first of all, it's called an unconference, and that's fun and exciting. And Uh,
0: (laughs) good point. Good point. It like throws you right like what I I think I know what a conference is. But what's an unconference? Do we just sit at home?
1: Yeah, I feel like I've been doing an unconference for like two and a half years.
0: (laughs) Is the unconference is a thing where you tell your family that you're going to a conference, but you just sit in a hotel for the weekend?
1: Oh, wait, is that a thing? Can we do that? (laughs) I can just tell my family and my colleagues that I'm going to a conference and I can just sit in a hotel and watch HGTV by myself like I normally do at a conference.
0: I mean, I suppose you could. I think this was probably a little bit more fun than that. Well, we'll get into in this episode all about what an unconference is and how it got started. But I wanted to ask you, Tyler, I know you've had to plan a conference, right? What was that like?
1: I did. I planned a couple of them. Planning a conference is way more work than anybody who attends a conference really appreciates. There are just so many balls in the air of trying to make it uh, all come together and do it in a way that's uh, creative and fun, people enjoy, but also that's kind of academically interesting and rigorous. And then there's like all the logistics and the planning and food and snacks and coffee and room numbers and all of this stuff. It's, it's a ton of work. And so I have a lot of respect for people who, who do it uh, more than one time, because I don't like to do it anymore. You've also been involved in planning conferences, though, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, not all the logistics like that. Very few of us are good at both like big conceptual, like what makes for an interesting idea for a conference? And then the minutiae of like, how do we get coffee there at 9 a.m. so that nobody complains, right? So mm-hmm. that's a unique person who can do both of those things well. Uh, I have never been involved in the minutiae and I bet it's it is a lot of work. I've been more involved in like, you know, how do we conceptualize the panels and how do we put together papers and sort of more of like going through abstracts and, and putting all that stuff together, which itself could be this huge task. This last couple years planning a conference, I've read maybe a thousand different abstracts. I've become really good at like knowing what makes for a good abstract but yeah i've just been involved in that kind of side of things but also laborious also like how many people email you to complain about stuff especially stuff that i wasn't involved in i everything i do is perfect of course but like (laughs) (laughs) somebody will complain about everything somebody wants something done differently it's either too expensive or there weren't enough snacks involved there's always something that isn't working for somebody
1: Yeah. So when I was on the planning committee, I was, for whatever reason, the only one available to sign like the invoice for this one particular conference. And it was the largest, besides the house that I purchased, it's the largest authorization of funds that I've ever signed in my life. It felt pretty powerful to sign my name to that check that I didn't have to pay.
0: (laughs) Well, uh, it's something in your life needs to feel powerful. That's right.
1: (laughs) So it's the little things that keep me going. So in this episode, we are meeting with the people who have been planners in each one of these different unconferences.
0: And what's, yeah, what's cool about talking with them is my story about planning a conference was just incredibly lame as I, as it was coming out of my mouth, I was thinking, wow, that's, I had nothing interesting to add to that conversation, (laughs) but this conference really is like conceptually very different and took a lot of innovation to think about. And they'll explain like how they came up with the ideas. But man, it is so unlike any conference I've been to, the things that I think can be a little bit tedious about a conference they eliminated, which is genius. Um, And they set people up to make real progress in the field, which is it's cool to be on the ground floor of something like that.
1: Yeah, the intention That was put into the development and planning of the original conference uh, has been really useful, I think, and a lot of good ideas and a lot of uh, progress within the kind of really small subfield of clinical ethics has really come to fruition. And so really excited to talk to these folks and to pick their brains a little bit about how they came up with the ideas and what they hope for the future of unconferences.
0: Yeah, and I'll say this as we lead into the episode. If you're thinking about going to this conference, there's a couple things I think you wanna know. You need to be prepared to like think things with people. It is not a passive conference. You're not gonna sit there and listen to people. You're gonna be expected to contribute. So if you're not a person who likes to contribute, maybe it's not for you, or at least uh, get in the mindset. I-, I think that would help. If you're the kind of person who, after you hear somebody else talk, you wanna talk for as long about things that you're interested in, you're really annoying at a normal conference, you're perfect for this conference. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, Because the presenters want your input, they want your feedback way more than any other conference and there's time, right? So every session is built so that everyone attending can have some input, which is awesome and empowering and actually probably is gonna be the thing that moves an idea forward. All right, well, welcome to this special season of Bioethics for the People. We are pleased to be joined by a whole lot of clinical ethicists at the moment. These are the planners of the unconference, which this whole season is about. So we're gonna have each of you introduce yourselves, tell us who you are, where you work, and then we have a bunch of questions for you about the conference, so we'll get to those in a second. So let's start, Paul, let's start with
2: you. So I'm Paul Ford. I'm a clinical ethicist at the Cleveland Clinic.
3: I'm Claire Horner from Baylor College of Medicine.
4: I'm Janet Malik. I'm a faculty member in the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at Baylor College of Medicine and a clinical ethicist at Houston Methodist
5: Hospital. I'm uh, Jordan Potter. I'm a clinical ethicist and director of clinical ethics fellowship here at the Wellstar Health System in Atlanta, Georgia.
6: I'm Hillary Mabel. I'm a clinical ethicist at Wellstar Health System.
1: Excellent. Appreciate all of your time and all of you being here. First question is to you, Paul. Uh, Tell us about the origins of the unconference, where did it start? Where did the idea come from? And how did you get the first one off the ground?
2: Our center for bioethics was looking for an event that would keep us focused on clinical ethics. So we looked around to see what we could host. And as we surveyed the landscape, we found that the traditional events were already booked out several years and we wanted to do something sooner. Many times, we would see that conferences were great to attend with great ideas, but weren't focused on actions, on new, innovative ways of moving the field forward. So Hilary Mabel and I discussed for a while that maybe we should do our own conference. In fact, not make it a conference, but actually a working meeting. And from there, we said, how can we move the field forward? Because there is some stagnation in clinical ethics because we're so busy doing That we don't always take the time to innovate and share those innovations. So with this idea that let's create a event that had no plenary speakers and only working groups that we would be focused on developing products, bringing ideas of innovation, and asking people to take those innovations and apply them.
1: Was the idea of an unconference or the format something that you were familiar with, or is this something you came up with?
2: So I'd love. Hillary, to weigh in on this because my memory is a little fuzzy about all the individual steps. Uh, my recollection is that as Hillary and I talked about this, we said, uh, We've been to small working groups and we've been to big conferences, been to the program managers' meeting where they have some consultancies. Let's mash these all together and create something wholly new that is bigger than a working group, smaller than a national conference, that is something pragmatic. And we threw out the standard format and decided to have new kinds of sessions that included crowdsourcing. I'd love to hear Hillary's maybe comment or two about some of the ways in which she innovated and developed these these different models.
6: Thanks, Paul. Just to build on what Paul said, I, I want to highlight and emphasize something he said. So I think sometimes ethics conferences can feel pretty academic. The presentations are interesting and stimulating, but they're not always relevant when it comes to real world practice. So you don't always feel like you're walking away feeling like your everyday work is impacted in a significant way. So to build on what Paul said, you know, our goal was to really make this have real world impact and feel like people were getting something out of it that they were going to take back to their home institution and make changes and improve their work and do something that they weren't doing before. So our goals were really twofold, I would say, in kind of developing the unconference. I think one to allow people to share the innovative work that they were doing with others. So folks, you know, working in clinical ethics could bring back those ideas to their home institutions. And two, to create opportunities for people to collaborate on the programmatic challenges that their clinical ethics programs faced by, as Paul said, crowdsourcing and working with other folks across institutions to really um, develop solutions. So to get to your question, Tyler, in, you know, Did we conceive it this way from the beginning or where did we pull from? We really wanted it to be different. We wanted people to come to the event and that's why we called it an unconference. We wanted people to come to the event feeling like they were not at a traditional conference, feeling like this really was going to be different so they could get in that mindset to be working really differently. We wanted it to feel like active participation was prioritized and problem solving was prioritized. So one of the places that we pulled from is a resource called Liberating Structures, and they have a website, anyone can go to it, where they offer a ton of non-traditional group formats for moderating group sessions and facilitating groups. And so we pulled from a couple of their formats and adapted them, and they have everything under a Creative Commons license where you can use and adapt for your purposes. And so we pulled heavily from Liberating Structures to develop new formats that we thought would be really effective for a clinical ethics context and this idea of a working event for people to learn from each other and come together to solve each other's problems.
2: I think the other two elements that are important is that we intended this to be a team-building exercise for our own group. And so not only was it a collaboration across various institutions, but really an idea idea that we would get together and do this together. And we threw off many of the conventions that we often have. And I think we're audacious behind the scenes in that people submitted uh, abstracts that we felt were the first idea. So we would look at them and in fact, give suggestions on ways in which we thought that it'd be more consistent with our theme or ask people to put together two submissions from people who didn't necessarily know each other but were similar. We even turned down one submission, but because we knew the person's work was particularly interested in different ways and had a unique voice, we suggested that we would be interested in one of their other kinds of activities that they they had. And we did it in a way that was respectful by description of these folks and uh, that they appreciated. And that person who we turned down the first idea was excited to do the thing that we suggested, in fact, more excited.
0: That's such a good idea in that it's building relationships. It's building collaborative work. It's not sort of an end product, but like a beginning conversation. I uh, plan another conference that will not be named, but a big bioethics conference. And I think a lot of times we say, oh, this idea isn't well developed enough. Come back to us next year when you've like finished the study or you have finished all the results. But what's so cool about the unconference is that you don't have to have a full idea What you need is the beginning of an idea and help working it out, which strikes me as a very different sort of conference. Is that part of the idea of unconference?
6: I would say absolutely, Devin. I think, you know, the fully formed ideas are nice because people can kind of take a ready-made innovation that someone's developed and then implement it at their own health system or their own organization. But I think those kernels of ideas are really what the unconference is about when we get into some of our formats, like the peer-to-peer solution sharing of working in a small group to build on an idea that somebody has. And I'm sure other folks who are, you know, part of this conversation will be able to comment on the fact that coming out of, you know, every single of the three unconferences that have happened so far there have been groups that have continued to work on projects and ideas that either were brought to the unconference in their initial stages or were sparked for the first time at the unconference by conversations with people and those those ideas continue to be worked on to this day so yeah absolutely and I think I agree with you I think that's one of the really exciting things about the unconference. So Claire, or Janet
0: or Jordan, what are some awesome things that have come out of the conference or what have you sort of added to the conference as it's moved from institution to institution?
4: So we had spoken um very briefly with Paul right before their on the conference and said like hey, we'd like to have some sort of, you know, plan for continuing this if it goes well. And I spoke with our leadership, they were very supportive, but kind of said, let's see how the first one goes. (laughs) Um, But after we arrived at the conference and participated through the, the few days, it was clear that this was something that was worth continuing. I think the things that really struck me at least were the collaborative nature of everybody in the room really wanted to work with other people in a collaborative rather than competitive way. Each of our programs is doing different and innovative things, but we're not trying to one-up each other. We're really trying to share our work and offer each other help where we have it and then get it from them where they can offer it. So I loved that nature of the conference. I think the second thing that struck me was how shocking it was that we are doing the work. Like we are the people doing the work that needs to be done. There aren't experts out there. There are people who have more experience, but there's not experts that are saying, this is how you do it, right? We are working it out as the field develops. And that was really exciting. So when we came back from the Unconference, we talked with our department leadership, reached out to Claire and said, Claire, I think this is something that you are the right person to help us with. Claire works at Baylor St. Luke's Medical Center. So both of our hospitals would be able to collaborate along with Baylor for the project. We looked into a couple of additional structures, liberating structures. I've I've actually run a couple of conferences using that approach before. So we included a couple of new um, ideas, one of which is the marketplace of ideas, um, which gives people the opportunity to uh, on the last day of the conference to bring any idea that they have you know, in the middle of the conference that maybe they got inspired by something they saw. It allows them to bring that to the group and try to find collaborators. And I think that actually was probably the biggest change that we made between the first and the second unconference. Claire, I don't know if you have other reflections.
3: Yeah, I didn't attend the un- first unconference, but uh, of course I helped Janet organize the second unconference. And we had a couple of submissions related to clinical ethics fellowships, and it really kind of sparked the conversation at the Baylor UnConference about more globally, how do we look at fellowships? Is there a way that we can streamline them or make them more uniform? And in fact, one of the ideas that came out of the marketplace of ideas was this idea of creating standards for fellowships what are we expecting of fellows coming out of these fellowship programs? And I was part of that conversation at the end of the unconference, and it was exciting and illuminating as we learned just how different our fellowships were, and yet how similar our goals were. Uh, And it was the first time, I think, that we as participants and leaders in clinical ethics fellowships had said, we really should share our, our materials. We should share what we're doing, what we're looking for, and also what we're looking for in hiring. Because ultimately we're hoping that our fellows are trained to be great clinical ethicists, go forward to be leaders in the field. And so they'll be working at our places someday. So it started this conversation, which I think really led nicely into the third unconference, which focused uh, its pre-conference session on clinical ethics fellowships. And I think the work that was really foundationally set at the first two unconferences has set up a collaboration in clinical ethics that I think is brand new and really strong. Uh, And that's what I've been most excited about in these unconferences.
5: One thing I'll, I'll also add that I think is interesting compared to other conferences is the actual work that comes out of the unconference, similar like what Janet and Claire were saying. Um, Hillary, while she was still at Cleveland Clinic, and I'm here at Wellstar during the second unconference, we were paired together to kind of focus on this issue about ethics committees. And so we had a peer-to-peer session to say, you know, what do we do with uh, ethics programs that have professional clinical ethics and staffing? And we, it's still an ongoing group that we're still working on with papers uh, two years later. Um, But it's interesting that resulting from this, we saw several differing presentations from both Cleveland Clinic and Wellstar that use some of these insights from the second on conference to really radically transition their ethics committee structure in their ethics programs. And so, you know, I I feel like at many of other conferences, you hear about an idea and it's like, oh, man, that's interesting. I, I would really like to Like utilize that in my practice, but then that's where it stops. Like, There's no real follow-up, I I feel like, in a lot of of these things that you see at a lot of more academic conferences, where these kind of more collaborative working group-type facilitation groups um, lead to this kind of practical work afterwards, and it has tangible results that you see in ethics programs. And so that's one of the biggest insights, I think, from the three young conferences I've been at thus far, I think one of the things that I like the most about the unconference
1: format is that when I go to a traditional academic conference, I'm usually not super engaged in the sessions. I mean, I'll go to a number of them and I'll 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 sit through ones that kind of pique my interest based upon the abstract. But a lot of the work that gets done, a lot of the value that I get from conferences is the the in-between the sessions part, right? When we're you know sharing a meal or a break or whatever. And when I'm in that when I'm in that mindset having someone like break the audience into small groups and do workshops and stuff is really kind of disorienting and uncomfortable for me. And so I, I'm, I'm always like, guy that's like, oh, I'm gonna peace out, right? I, I, I'm not here to do work groups, I'm not here to be in small group discussions. But the unconference, I mean, that's the intention of the whole thing. So I come in with it with a different mindset that I'm not just here to passively receive stuff. But I'm, I'm engaged in this and committed to this work. And it, I think it's been really uh, enlightening, but also um, refreshing. Because I actually come out with, like you said, more tangible things to do next, different ideas of how to improve my practice and my program. And so in those ways, I think it's been a really exciting addition to the other conferences that we as academics go to.
2: You know, the thing that struck me most about this third unconference is for the first time I had a chance to directly experience the lightning talks in a new way. And I realized when Jordan and Hillary emailed me the crowd responses, that it was a treasure trove. And I realized that I may have given a core of idea to the audience, but what they gave back to me in the ideas to move it forward was far greater than what I was feeding to them. And like you say, oftentimes it's a one directional conference where I'm giving them the ideas that I have had in lightning talk. Here, it really struck me two weeks later that wow, I had a gift from those audience members who really took it seriously and are gonna make my project better.
0: It might be helpful for those who haven't gone to the UnConference for y'all to maybe explain what is a lightning talk and what is its purpose? What are these working groups? What is this marketplace of ideas? Just sort of a quick rundown of the different elements of this conference that makes it really different than normal conferences.
6: I can elaborate on that, Devin. So there's three primary formats that we did at the most recent unconference, the third unconference. In the first two unconferences, there were a couple others. So I'll let other folks jump in for those. But two of them have been consistent since the first one. So the first is the lightning talks. So these are essentially a five-minute talk that somebody gives on some sort of innovative practice that they've developed at their home institution. And they usually have three slides that they present out. It's for five minutes. And then afterwards as Paul was alluding to, there's a component where the presenter pulls the audience. So asking two to three questions about how to improve the innovative practice that they're bringing to the group. And so there's an opportunity for people to use, you know, respond on their phone or on the computer to provide more ideas to the presenter about how to make their innovative practice even better and other ideas to move it forward. The second format is the peer-to-peer solution sharing. So this is the idea that there's a presenter who has some sort of challenge that they're facing at their own institution or that the clinical ethics field as a whole is facing, that they want to bring a group together to brainstorm how to overcome that challenge and how to develop a solution. And so essentially they share out what the problem is to the small group and people vote with their feet. They go to whichever group they find most interesting. They think they would benefit from the most. And you end up with a small group of people who are highly engaged around that particular topic. And then drawing from liberating structures, you work through four different areas of discussion in solving the problem. So the first one is purpose and value, thinking about why is this topic important? What value could solving this challenge bring um, to your program or to the field? The second is critical considerations. What are some of the practical considerations that might impact the issue? Thinking about legal concerns or bandwidth of stakeholders and what's kind of critical for people to accomplish or what are the roadblocks? The third is stakeholders and champions, thinking about who can contribute to overcoming this challenge, who should be included. And then finally, a larger portion is spent talking about solutions in terms of what are viable structures or formats for addressing the challenge? What should the scope of the response be? And you know, what should the solution look like in its ultimate form? And I think for some groups with the peer-to-peers, they end up with fully-fledged solutions to their challenge. And I think others, it's incremental progress and real progress that's made for ongoing conversation to move forward. Um, marketplace of ideas is something that was developed at Baylor. Um, so I'll let Janet or Claire talk about that format.
3: Uh, So the marketplace of ideas is really where you take uh, an idea that you've had either percolating before or ideally during the conference. And at the end of the conference, you bring it to the group and say, here's an idea I had. Is anybody interested in collaborating? And there are different ways that you can then vote on it. I think at Baylor, we did a physical vote where we had posters up of different topics and people could vote on which topics they wanted. Uh, While at Wellstar, they improved on that and did an electronic voting. And they can choose, you know, narrow it down to six to eight topics that they want to focus on at the end of the conference. And then people can vote with their feet and go and join whatever topic they feel would be most beneficial to them or they feel that their expertise aligns most with. Uh, And the idea is that that would hopefully set up some work to do for the future and maybe some publications for the future that maybe weren't addressed in the unconference or were started by an idea in the unconference.
2: The other two formats that were at one of the three conferences that I recall were the white paper writing and the fishbowl. And in the first conference, we set aside that last half of a day, the afternoon, to have formed groups that wanted to write a white paper on a specific topic. The idea was that groups would form ahead of time from people planning to attend, and that this would be a working group to bring all the ideas together and then spar the papers that were published then later in the Journal of Clinical Ethics. That was a way to try to end it in a working group format to create the even further hybrid, which was an attempt to be actual product driven. And then there was the fishbowl, which was in the second conference, which perhaps uh, Janet or Claire want to mention.
4: One of our themes was to try to focus on both very established and emerging programs and the difference in the needs that they might have. And so one way we thought we could highlight that would be to have leaders from, you know, well established programs and then another session with leaders from emerging programs to kind of share their experiences, allow the uh, you know, participants to ask them questions, things like that. They call it a fishbowl because you kind of sit around and every all the participants are supposed to watch fish, swim. (laughs) Um, So it's supposed to be interactive like that. Um, I think it got a little bit more like a standard panel and the evaluations, the comments that we got afterwards. Some people really liked it, but a lot of people kind of said, man, that's too traditional. That doesn't really meet the spirit of the unconference. And so we passed that feedback along to Wellstar, which I think maybe wisely (laughs) decided to to move away from that. But that was the goal of those sessions.
2: But I think this point is very important that The unconferences now have always had local control and innovation and a freedom to try something new, see if it works, and see if it fits your purposes. And then when it gets handed off to another place, they have complete artistic control as long as the idea is to stay in the general Uh, idea that this is a working meeting that is intended to be innovative. So that some formats have dropped off is actually a good thing because we tried it. That was good for our needs. Next person looks to see what's good for their needs and how they can innovate. And if we were just to stick with the same format, we would again fall into the very trap we are trying to avoid.
6: To add on to that, I think going along with the collaborative nature of the event itself, but I think we've all been very collaborative in sort of handing off those materials. So Janet mentioned handing off the feedback about fishbowl to Jordan and I when we were planning the third unconference at Wellstar, and you know when when Paul and I planned the first unconference at Cleveland Clinic, and then. Janet and Claire came on to plan the second at Baylor, we were like, here are all of our materials, here's everything, but please do what you want with it in terms of, as Paul said, having artistic control, making changes, making improvements. And I think Janet and Claire did that in handing off the feedback they had from their surveys to Jordan and I. And certainly I understand that Sutter will plan to host the fourth one in 2024. And so Jordan and I are planning to hand off all of our survey data and everything that we did for this conference to them to build upon and improve and to evolve it in a way that makes sense for the time that it is hosted then. So I also think that the way in which we've all worked together in terms of sharing the materials that we developed with the next co-directors of the young conference has been a reflection of the collaborative nature of the event itself as well.
3: You know, Tyler, I wanted to follow up on what you said about conferences that does feel like it's really one way and you're just kind of there to listen Uh, And you may or may not be engaged. And I think one of the things that we experience in conferences is wanting to contribute a comment disguised as a question. You know, we feel we have something to contribute, but there's not really an opportunity to do that in a meaningful way. And so that's one of the cool things about the Unconference. They actually want audience participation. They want to know what our ideas are and our comments are. Uh, We don't have to disguise them as questions anymore. Our advice and feedback is actually valued. And I think that that's extremely valuable for this group as a whole because it's a small tight-knit community that really everybody's bringing something important to the table and everybody's experience and knowledge really makes for a much richer, more robust solution for whatever the issue is.
1: I think there's something unique about clinical ethicists, maybe bioethicists in general, where we can do an event like this that's very collaborative. Um, Like you said, there's not a lot of ego wrapped up in the format. It's really intended to propel Uh, the field forward and and find best practices. Where other fields may not, there may be more inherent competition, but I think maybe clinical ethicists or bioethicists in general, uh, I mean, we're not competing for multi-million dollar grants, right? We're not, not, you know, maybe I could be wrong, but I don't think anybody's winning the Nobel Prize based upon innovations of, um, you know, practice or whatever.
0: Not yet, not yet. Not yet,
1: yeah. It's on my, it's on my (laughs) list, but So maybe it's just the 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 nature of ethics as being collaborative and being you know relationship based that makes it really this type of conference be really useful or really beneficial.
2: So I would push back. I think that there is a cohort in clinical ethics who are in the midst of hospitals doing the work who are not necessarily attracted to the high competition academic kind of bioethics clinical ethics. So I think the folks who get the most out of this and are attracted to pitch in are a specific kind of personality. So I think most fields have those personalities and those people. And this served a 100-ish people each time, uh, plus or minus, which doesn't constitute our entire field. But there's also overlap, but new people coming in. So it's not just one little cohort, but it's a section of bioethics, clinical ethics, personality, and people who are looking to innovate and do and are charged in their programs with doing new things that are gonna help people.
6: One of the things that really struck me about this year's unconference was how many young people or early career ethicists there were. And for a solid minority of people, I would say this was their first unconference. We saw that when we asked at the very beginning for people to raise their hands if it was the first unconference. And we saw that in our survey data that we, we've reviewed of how many people this was their first unconference. And I think it's really exciting because they're the ones who are going to be building the future of the field and socializing people into you know, our community and into our environment. And so I think the fact that it's collaborative and friendly rather than competitive, as a couple of different people have pointed out, is really important. To hopefully having a future of the field of clinical ethics that reflects the same. So that's something that I think is also really cool and really nice about the collaborative nature of the event.
5: One thing I will say to kind of piggyback on what Tyler was saying is that I don't think it's anything necessarily about clinical ethicists themselves, but rather where we're at in our field and where we're at in, you know, our push for professionalization. I mean, I think we're kind of right there in the right area where this kind of working conference we're all branching out into these new areas. I mean, moral distress, you know, how do, how do we do these things? How do we, are these actual consults? Are these different kinds of ethics work? Um, you know, ethics committees now making that transition. There's there's lots of different areas where we're branching out into, into getting into new areas. And so I do think in the sense, it's not necessarily about the clinical ethicists themselves or the people that make up the field, but more about where we are at in the field and where we're kind of getting into this new area and just really starting to come into our own.
4: I do think that there is a bit of a personality, what is the right word, trend, I guess. I I think a certain, it takes a certain type of person to be a clinical ethicist and that person is likely sensitive and aware and, you know, collaborative in nature. You can't do this kind of work without having that personality. So I'll, I'll take a little bit of you know, credit for our field and say that, yes, it is definitely, I 100% agree, Jordan, that a lot of it is where we are and just the plain need for this kind of work and collaboration.
2: There are those that are more academically competitively inclined who would not enjoy this kind of focus on, on developing new pragmatic techniques. So I think that we see a cohort presenting at academic conferences on clinical ethics that are not necessarily at bedside, that would not enjoy or appreciate this kind of non-competitive free sharing of ideas. Because the idea was bring an idea, take a bunch of ideas, and it's not stealing, it's freely given. And I think that is what the best of us is at bedside. And so it fits that culture. But not all of clinical ethics has traditionally or is that mindset.
1: Paul, are you going to name names and throw bombs at people?
2: No, just just say, (laughs) I I think that the idea that there's a lot of junior people that are hungry for this practical, pragmatic is important. I mean, the idea was not to have big plenary, big names, folks that just want to uh, pontificate. And I think that the senior people, more senior people there were usually folks who really wanted to continue to learn themselves so i i think there you're right there is a segment a big segment of the at the bed clinical ethicists that this is exactly what we need and will resonate
0: and i think that's what jordan was saying about the field right so it's it's been the case that there have been ethics committees around for a few decades now but this idea that there's like a, a clinical ethics consultant who goes to bedside whose full-time job is in the hospital that's actually fairly new it's a fairly young field and it's just now wrestling with credentialing and certification and professionalization of the field but that means that there's lots of room to innovate so people are hungry to like figure out what is it we're doing and what are other people doing and maybe we're not all so connected because we're so ingrained in our institutions that it's hard to sort of think outside the box and this maybe is a platform to figure out both what are other people doing and how can we figure out together how to move the field forward? And with that, I want to know, like, what are the plans for the future of this conference? Like, how are we moving the field forward? And how are we moving this conference forward?
3: I think one of the biggest challenges that clinical ethics faces is not just trying to kind of define the field and what it means to do a consult, what it means to be a consultant, what it means to do the work that we do, but also trying to get recognition from leadership, recognition from hospital administration that what we do is really important. So all of these aspects of what does it mean to have a consult and what is the scope of our activity, all of those are critically important to getting buy-in from those in hospital administration to really take us seriously and really help us move the field forward at the same time. So it's really a relationship between those two. And so I see the unconference moving us forward, not just in unification of what it is that we do and defining the scope of our practice, but also helping us to become more ingrained and more respected in the American healthcare system. Uh, because I think There's a lot of people who still don't know what clinical ethics is and what clinical ethics does. And it's a great service that is provided to hospitals and patients. And the more that we work together to build the field and define it, the more ingrained I think that we'll be able to be.
1: All right. I'm going to have you guys complete this sentence for me. The best part about planning this unconference was, and then the worst part about the unconference (laughs) was. So Hillary and Jordan, you guys are the most recent co-planners hosts of this conference. So Hillary you go first and then Jordan. The best thing and then the worst thing.
6: The best part about planning the Unconference for me um, in this most recent iteration was really getting to work with everybody on our team at Wellstar. So I joined Wellstar a little over a year ago. And while Jordan and I have you know, directed the Unconference and had the big picture vision of everything, every single person on our team has contributed in meaningful ways that really have aligned with their passions and their interests and their strengths. So for me, it's been really nice to allow for people to shine in different aspects of planning the conference and get to know them. As, you know, as soon as I joined Wellstar, I was, we started planning this one. So that I think was the best thing about planning it for me. The worst thing about planning it for me is just all the logistics. Um, You know, there's a lot that goes into planning an event like this. This year during COVID, especially, we had a lot of uncertainty and a lot of considerations of, you know, would it happen? How would it happen? How can we optimize safety and help people feel safe? And all of that contributed to making the logistics even more challenging. So those are what I would say about best and most challenges. Challenging.
5: The, the best part for me is that it's over, um, <laughs> Not just just kidding, but um, it's a lot of work. So I'll, I'll start off with the worst part, how about that? It's a lot of work, especially in COVID. Um, that put a lot of uncertainty on what we had to do. We had to kind of take a non-traditional venue, which had its pros and its cons, but I think we did a good job of balancing some of the, the good stuff about safety and then still having some convenience factors. So I'd say COVID was definitely the hardest part about um, organizing this. I would say the best part would be just being able to put our kind of stamp on moving the field forward in terms of high quality level of talks that we had and high quality level of projects that we got to see from all across the country from both senior more people in the field to more junior people in the field. So I think that was kind of really the best part. Is I really putting our kind of stamp on putting forth what we think is important, what we think is innovative for our field moving forward, um, and then just having the kind of representation from all over the all over the country, all over different ethics programs, and from all over the uh, field, from more senior people to to more junior people.
3: I think the best part of planning the young conference was having the opportunity to network with people. There were a fair amount of people in the field that I knew, but directing this, the second unconference helped me to meet and get to know people like I hadn't before, which has been great. I got to work with uh, Hillary before the unconference, learning about the first unconference. I got to meet her at an ASBH and we had a a nice lunch to talk about kind of the logistics. So the best part was really the networking for me and being able to meet new people. Uh, The hardest part was definitely the logistics. Um, It was finding the rooms and booking the rooms and getting all the materials. And then on the day of trying to make sure that nothing fell apart. Heart, um, you know, dealing with the last minute crisis. So that is definitely the hardest part, but well worth it. Yeah, I would echo all of that
4: 100%. I think trying to reach into a different area, I think one of the best parts for our program was the internal opportunity, because at Baylor, we service two different hospitals and have two different services staffed by two different groups of folks, the opportunity to get together and work on something jointly was really good team building, I think for all of us. Um, and even though Claire and I sort of took the lead, everybody in the team participated. So that was really terrific. I think we actually avoided very narrowly what could have been the worst outcome, which is that we had our conference right before COVID started. And I look back often and just I'm so grateful that we were able to sneak it in because that absolutely would have been the worst part to have to make it go virtual at the last minute.
2: The best part, perhaps, is the lasting effect of the first conference. We did surveys at the time of the conference and then about seven months later. And I was delighted to find that the impression seven months later was very high on how much they appreciated the work. But even better, the number of people who had taken something from the first unconference and implemented it in their institution was wonderful to see that there was this effect both in emotional response, but also in actual doing. That there has been three unconferences now, and there's the fourth one in 2024 in San Francisco. Again, this lasting effect is the best kind. The worst was the sudden realization after the unconference that we should have set up the white paper writing differently. Much more pre-work should have been done to better utilize that time to actually get the product out. And as a result, the papers for the journal clinical ethics were greatly delayed. And had we just implemented some easy things ahead of time, that format could have been better. And uh, maybe overall, it was too ambitious a goal. So that was probably the the worst moment is after saying we didn't quite do the pre-planning we needed to.
0: Do any of you have examples of something amazing that you've heard that has changed in clinical ethics as a result of this conference? So an idea that's really been moved forward or just an idea that really sticks out in your mind of something that happened during the conference that really changed practice?
5: So I already mentioned like the ethics committee stuff, but I think that's a a really important one just to really hone in on that. It's making this huge transition from thinking that We have to have ethics committees and programs with professional clinical ethicist staffing. And one of the things I think that was really, really interesting in in some of the poll data was that we're not the only ones that were thinking about this. We've heard from, I think, what, four or five different people after the unconference already, Hillary, that have wanted to talk with us about, you know, how have we started to do this process? How have we, you know, how do we get buy-in to do this? Um, And then the poll data was really fascinating in that, like, I think it was like two-thirds of the respondents had said something to the effect of we've thought about transitioning away from ethics committees and moving to a different kind of model and different structures for ethics engagement for non-professional clinical ethicists in our health system. And so I think it's, that's one of the ones that has really been a defining uh, feature of some of the results and tangible things that have come out of the unconference from both the first one to the second one and now to the third one. And hopefully we'll see even more in the, in the fourth one. Uh, of this kind of transition away to new t- new structures.
4: There's also been developments towards sort of data sharing. I think that was a big focus of the second conference and creating databases or developing ways to track our own consult data, but then to share it and sort of standardize it with others, um, as well as the fellowship uh, as that we already discussed, the sort of collaboration between fellowships.
6: One of the things that our team is in the process of doing post the most recent unconference is we got together and everybody shared out their couple major takeaways, one to three major takeaways of things that we should do, start doing, or change about our practice on our team. And so we've collated that list and we're going to be going through a process where we sort of rank how much effort would go into that initiative um, and how much impact would it have. And then our plan is to have you know a handful of items that we basically... Take away that we learned at the Young Conference that we do implement and change. At WellStar. So, some of the things that we had highlighted were around data sharing and data tracking. There were some ideas around addressing burnout that came out of the unconference for us, ideas around non standard metrics to measure the impact of ethics work, and a number of others that um, you know, our team will be going through in terms of figuring out what are some changes that we can make based on what we learn from others. So, more, more to come on that. But I would imagine that there are a lot of people who attended the unconference who will be doing similar things, whether in a Systematic way, or just these are the couple things I learned, and these are the things I'm going to tweak about my practice, or start doing. That you know, the cumulative effect I think is really, really cool to think about.
2: I think your question's a great one, and and it prompts me to say at the next conference, I would love there to be a roundtable to highlight what people have implemented that was new, so that we could learn from how somebody had taken somebody else's implementation, tried it at their place, and see how their local environment needed uh, changes. So I think that's a, a fantastic uh, new innovation that we could we could adopt to make that more transparent. So that we all know the kinds of effects that, that this has had.
0: What is something you hope for the Unconference moving forward? If you could just name one thing that you really hope happens, what would that thing be?
2: So I hope that it will continue to spark more grassroots kinds of efforts to do working meetings like this. And that people don't just wait for the unconference to happen, but these little groups that have found each other at the unconference, that they continue to meet, create working groups, create more kinds of things like small unconferences on focused topics.
6: I see
4: the question about professionalization as one of the biggest sort of crises that we are facing. And all three of the unconferences have generally avoided that topic to some I mean, there've been a few discussions of it, but when we did our second unconference, we actually specifically invited proposals related to professionalization and got maybe one. I think it's a problem that we feel is overwhelming, but I also think it's a problem that needs our input and needs the input of the clinical ethicists on the ground. Um, So I would love to see a future unconference, not focus solely on that, but perhaps have a pre-conference or a special working session on that question and how we can be moving that process forward.
6: My answer is going to pick up on Janet's a little bit. I think, you know, my hope for the Young Conference in general is that it continues to be a grassroots endeavor where professional clinical ethicists come together to really think about the future of the field and develop what that's going to look like 5, 10, and 20 years down the line. On the point of professionalization that Janet made, I think that the unique thing about the unconference is that it's not affiliated with any professional society or organization. It is so grassroots. And so in that way, I think there's a lot of opportunity to pick up on some of these, you know, crises of the field or even more controversial issues that maybe would not be selected even if somebody did submit for a conference like ASVH because of the controversy around it. And the on-conference can be a venue for having those tough conversations about the future of the field. So that is something I would love to see um, in future on-conferences and would anticipate in terms of you know having that venue for professional clinical ethicists to talk about what do we want this to look like going forward.
0: Great. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time. We loved the on-conference. I hope people continue to come in the future. It's so worth it if you're a clinical ethicist. And if you're not and you're just listening, hopefully you gained a lot of insight into the things that we do. So thanks for all that you've done. And we want to promote all the on-conferences going forward. So thanks for what you do. For more information about today's episode, show notes, and links to articles and topics discussed, please head over to bioethicsforthepeople.com. Special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork and Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I don't have anything else to add.
0: So enjoy. Here we go.
1: (laughs) And away we go.